this episode, I'm joined by Adam Lovage, who is an independent researcher and philosopher based in Budapest, Hungary. In this episode, we discuss his book, Updating Bergson, A Philosophy of the Enduring Present, alongside discussions on Bergson's philosophy, the philosophy of Gilles Deleuze, and subjects such as change and time. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Omitics and keep the podcast running indefinitely, alongside getting access to some exclusive content, please find links in the description below. Enjoy. So, Adam Lovas, thanks very much for joining us on Omitics podcast. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, we are going to be discussing your book, which was published May of this year, uh, Updating Bergson. A Philosophy of the Enduring Present, uh, published by Lexington Books, um, a book which is tackling the work and philosophy, of course, of Henri Bergson, and as you can imagine from the title, updating it and also um, tackling much of the contemporary discussion around Bergson and also the sort of uh, Bergson after Deleuze debate as well. Um, but before we jump in with the book, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what it is you do, and how this book uh, came about. Uh, I'm a currently a PhD student and a PhD researcher at Utrecht uh, Lorand University in Budapest. And uh, well, I have uh, various, lots of different interests regarding uh, various types of philosophy, mainly continental philosophy. Uh, social philosophy, but also various types of philosophy which sort of, sort of question uh, the anthropocentrism or the centrality of humans. So I, I'm very interested in all sorts of different philosophies which sort of question the, the idea that humans are at the center of the universe or humans are the most important uh, 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 creatures or things which exist. And I was very drawn to uh, Bergson's work because I've done uh, various research into, uh, on the one hand, post-humanism and the sort of philosophical uh, precedence of post-humanism, but also the philosophy of Deleuze and Guattari. So I really came to Bergson uh, through uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, and I sort of found that these there are very uh, interesting uh uh, contents in Bergson, which I want to uh, sort of work out. And the idea for this book, basically, so, so I, I guess th this sort of question revolves around why why Bergson? So why why is Bergson interesting for us in, in, in 2021? And I think, the re so the reason I wrote this book is basically because Bergson was one of the last philosophers, I think, who sort of... Uh, viewed philosophy as this science of sciences. So there's a sort of a idea that philosophy can integrate all these different sciences into one uh, ultra science, I guess. This, this really isn't uh, after Bergson. You have a couple of other thinkers like Whitehead and Dulles who continue this tradition, but it becomes very uh, rare, uh, uh, very uh, difficult because uh, the natural sciences have become so... Uh, complex, uh, you know, everyone has their different uh, area of expertise, and it's very hard for philosophy to keep up with the developments in the natural sciences. But Bergson really uh, was, in many ways, uh, 
Bergson has become very inspiring for me because Bergson was one of these philosophers who tried to um, integrate knowledge into this uh, and create a sort of view of the world, like an image of the world, by using biology, physics, uh, chemistry, whatever, and putting it all together into one, like in this holistic view of the world. And this was the uh, inspiration for my book, to find a philosopher who's, who was capable and ambitious enough to put all the sciences together into one philosophy. And th this is uh, the reason I chose Bergson. Um, another reason is that Bergson is not very distant from us in terms of time. So I didn't want to go back to like the ancient Greeks or the Stoics or whatever, because not because I do not like them or anything, but because Bergson is uh, nevertheless uh, familiar enough for us. Like he, he was living in the same sort of uh, a similar sort of society, a similar uh, age. Uh, we're, we're in many ways living in, a, in a, a similar age to the early 20th century, but I maybe we could get back into that later. But uh, so the historical period is also similar to the early 20th century. We're having major scientific revolutions the same way as we had back then. So it's a, it's a complex uh, range of factors why I, I consciously decided to choose Bergson and not, uh, not someone, someone earlier, for example. Mm, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, he seems to be situated, you know, right in the, right in the strange position there, like, like you, as you've uh, explained, I can't add, I've realized I can't explain it as well as you have there. So, um, but there is a question I've outlined there, which I think we'll jump into just after the Hermetics question relating to Deleuze, because I think it, perhaps it's a good place to begin from. But, but before we do so, um, I do have to ask you the Hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? And we can, as we are talking primarily about Bergson, we can include Henry Bergson and then add three more. I, I would be very interested in uh, Heraclitus, uh, Bergson, and maybe Nietzsche or Schopenhauer. One of the, I think one of those is optional. But uh, so I'd be very interested in what Heraclitus has to say about uh, later, like modern philosophers who have been inspired by this sort of view of the world as uh, eternal change and like. Uh, People who have been influenced by by uh, these fragments, so that would be that would be very fascinating to uh, listen to what what and it, it, even whether they can understand each other. So that that's sort of my problem with the ancient Greeks, in many ways, is that we don't have a, a common philosophical language with them. Like they were living in a completely different type of society. And there are some things which are the same, but uh, we're living in a very different age, very different technologies. And I don't think that an ancient, but, but so it would still be very interesting though, like uh, what, what Heraclitus thought of uh, like Bergson and like what, what he would make of, make of it and, and uh, what they would ask each other, I guess that would be a very fascinating thought experiment. Maybe someone could write a book, book like this someday. Do you, do you, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of of this opinion as well, that the way it seems that we study these figures from the past immediately modernizes them, um, not in relation to like what we consider modern philosophy, but just modernizes them with our own, with our own language, our own ha habits and customs. And we could say modernizes them with our own tongue. And I always wonder, you know, if, if we, 
put one of these people from the classical era in a room or even from the medieval era or perhaps even not that long ago, would the idiosyncrasies and tiny traits of these people, there'd be so many of them and they'd be so subtly different that a communication between the two, two, two people would just be very, very strange and perhaps even impossible, you know. Yeah, and it's it's uh, very interesting how we we don't have uh, like in in a certain period you ha- you could only be a philosopher if you spoke ancient Greek, for example, or like you had to know Greek if or Latin if you were like a real philosopher. And, and we're we're not living in that that age anymore. Um, but but yeah, I mean, like if we sit with Bergson in a cafe today. I don't think he will be that uh, freaked out, I guess, by the, the various technological implements we have or the, the cars or anything, because they, they had a, they had almost, uh, well, a lot of stuff back then, 1910, 1920, 1930s. Like he, he went to cinema and everything. So these sort of, uh, he would be very, uh, it would be very strange for Bergson to have all these uh, small screens everywhere, like smartphones, for example, but he wouldn't be surprised, I think. So, um, but for an ancient Greek, that's a very different proposition. Like uh, they would be completely uh, flabbergasted by these, uh, this inundation of images we, we live in. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's very hard to imagine what, what that would be like, but it's a very good thought experiment. So I'd, very interested. I'd be very impressed by a philosopher who writes a book like this, like a conversation with three dead, uh, dead philosophers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Perhaps Heraclitus, Nietzsche, and Schopenhauer might come back in. But I mean, I want to touch on something that that was definitely going to come up um, in in this chat, and uh, it plays a role in your book as well. And um, I think it's increasingly common because you said that you first came across Bergson through the work of Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari. You know, we're talking of capitalism and schizophrenia, what is philosophy, uh, the work on cinema, but then Deleuze, Deleuze himself with Bergsonism. And basically, you know, the, the, the sort of the history seems to go that Bergson was intellectually dead after the famous Einstein debate, which we'll get into later. And then nothing much really happened with Bergson, correct me if I'm wrong. And then Deleuze picks him up. And after that, there is a, a sort of a second wave of revitalization, uh, a bit of a pun there, of Bergson. But this is sort of considered now Bergsonism. So, I mean, I guess my question is how it's increasingly common for people to first come across Bergson via Deleuze. How helpful do you really think this is in understanding Bergson? Do you think this ultimately ends in people who are interested in Bergson having to almost... It's like one step forward, two steps back. They learn something, but then the the subtle, perhaps, changes that Deleuze might be making or alterations, they have to sort of take a step back and, and begin again, in a way. Yes, I'm, I am absolutely... Uh... In many ways, um, in, indebted to what Deleuze did, uh, did in in revitalizing Bergson. So without Deleuze, I probably would not have uh, gone back to Bergson, for example. And I think many people are, are really uh, do find Bergson rediscover Bergson through Deleuze. But it's also, as as you hinted, it's it's also problematic because in many ways it reduces Bergson to Deleuze's philosophy and the two are uh, not, not uh, the same at all. 
So it's, we have, have to be very careful when we read anything. Uh, when Deleuze is, uh, Deleuze was not a historian of other philosophers. So he, he uh, reads Bergson in a way which uh, uh, he tries to create his own philosophy from Bergson, which is, I'm not saying it's a bad thing necessarily. It's a, it's a very creative way of reading, but he makes not just subtle changes, but very drastic changes to Bergson. So it's, it's, um, it's a trap in many ways, because we, if we, we see a book about a philosopher, which was written by another philosopher, we, we think that it's a summary of the other philosopher. It's a commentary or something, but it's actually not. Um, I could get into like technical details of the basic uh, gist of my problem with Deleuze's book, it's the uh, Bergsonism. Uh, it's it's uh, that's the title of Deleuze's book. It was uh, read, published in 1966, if I remember correctly, and it really did result in a sort of revitalization of Bergson literature. But uh, especially after it was translated into English, so actually in the from the 1980s, uh, in the English language area. And uh, so Deleuze was helpful, but it's uh, in many ways Deleuze is very wrong because, for example, he emphasizes that virtual virtuality is the central concept of, of Bergson's philosophy. This is what Deleuze is claiming, but this is false. It's categorically false and it has, doesn't play any sort of uh, major role in Bergson's philosophy. It's all about actuality. It's all about pure change. Uh, what uh, Ergson calls duration is basically change. It's the process of change. So Bergson is, is more of a purely a process philosopher. And the, the, the way Deleuze uses the virtual, he makes it into almost a sort of platonic idea. It, it's completely unnecessary for understanding Bergson, I think. And I mean, this is a radical view, but I think we, we do not need the virtual uh, to understand what Bergson is talking about. It's completely redundant uh, in many ways. So this is the sort of the trap of relying on Deleuze to read Bergson. We, have, we basically, if we want to understand a, a thinker, uh, we have to read uh, the author themselves and then find out if, uh, if the, the, the people who have written about that author are correct or incorrect. And Deleuze is, if we read it just, um, just through in this way, then Deleuze's reading of Bergson is completely baseless, actually. It has nothing to do with Bergson, basically, or just in some ways. But it's it's not uh, it's not a it's not about Bergson. It's about Deleuze. It's about here the way he uses the actual and the virtual. So it tells us more about Deleuze than about Bergson. So I, in many ways, my book was motivated by also a sort of disillusionment about uh, Deleuze. Um, but it's uh, it's not just. Uh, I don't just attack Deleuze. I also have uh, some good things to say about Deleuze's later books, the cinema, cinema books. In there, I think he gets closer to what Bergson is talking about. So it's uh, not one-sided. It's the 1960s Deleuze, I guess, which is, uh, I think it places way too much emphasis on, on the virtual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, Deleuze, Deleuze does that a lot. I mean, perhaps it, it's a long time coming that someone finally says, look, 
these books are about Deleuze and not about the authors that he's writing about. Unfortunately, I mean, I can't speak for the French translation, the, the original French titles, um, but in English translation, they do, as you say, if you were to take them at face value, they do come across as um, works which are simply commentaries. Can't, you know, I'm thinking Kant's... Uh, God, I forgot the title of that one, but Spinoza, Practical Philosophy, um, Bergsonism, etc., etc. These are books which come across as commentaries. Um, and Deleuze sort of uh, perhaps quite subtly enters his own his own work into there. Um, but I mean, this this is quite interesting in relation then to your title, you know, updating Bergson. Is your, so your reason for updating Bergson is almost an update which is stepping back back in time and beginning from the start it's not as if it's a uh you know an innovative and uh, would you consider it innovative the, 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 this update that you're talking about and why do you and why do you uh think it is that Bergson needs updating in this way yeah this is a this is a very uh interesting question um regarding updating i, I think yes yeah, so we have to go back to the pre-dollars Bergson in many ways to really understand what Bergson is about um, I think we have to like uh, bracket what Deleuze has written about Bergson. We really just go back to the source itself in many ways. And uh, I think this is a sort of ambivalence in the very uh, meaning of the word update. So like when we update something, we're, we're doing something new, but also like going back and starting again. So that was my motivation for, for I guess, the, this, this sort of title. Um, and it's also like refreshing. We have to go back, but also bring something new and also bring some of our knowledge, current day knowledge back in time as well. So, um, I mean, especially, so some of Bergson's work, um, like when he talks about the psychology in the early, uh, late 19th century, it comes across sometimes as a little bit dated. So like some of the, obviously science has, has a greatly expanded uh since the, over the last century. So the reason we need updating is to sort of separate the noise from the information. So like the, the really important, the, I guess the spirit of what Bergson is doing to separate it from the individual details. So like some of the scientific examples are not always uh, 100% up to date in what Bergson is doing, but it also it sort of works in a, uh, going back, but also going forward. So when we update something, we also we're going we're doing a sort of innovation as well. So I'm not making the claim that what I'm doing is 100% uh, in line with all of Bergson's philosophy. There's some of his philosophy which is not really uh, up to our current day standards of what knowledge is is about. So I'm not trying to say that Bergson is without fault. But what I'm saying is that it contains a sort of method, I guess. Um, and in this, Deleuze is correct, was correct that Bergson contains a sort of good method, I think, for integrating uh, knowledge. And that's, that's intuition. Like intuition is, I think, the, the key concept of Bergson in, and the intuition of, of duration. So the sort of the getting to know what, what change is about, taking change seriously but also taking time seriously. So, um, and sort of thinking, changing our way of what we think about time. That That's crucial, I think, for what Bergson is doing. The idea of having an intuition of change. And this intuition, um, 
so we need to update by sort of, I bring uh, many current scientific examples, which are of like the past five, 10 years, which sort of uh, maybe um, sort of uh, give a basis to what Bergson is doing, uh, what Bergson is talking about. So I sort of try to bring uh, contemporary examples as well as Bergson's own examples sometimes. Um, and I think it's a, from, so this is what Bergson can give us, I guess, a sort of method for philosophically integrating uh, various types of knowledge, various registers, and creating a sort of philosophical view of the world and to really have this, uh, I guess, bravery. So philosophy needs more bravery, I think, to sort of... Uh, uh, go and push back against this sort of idea that, uh, which is very common today, unfortunately, that philosophy should just follow blindly what the natural sciences are doing and just like assist what the natural. So, so physicists have to talk about what the world is is like, what the re reality is, and philosophy has nothing original to add add to what physicists are doing. I think I think that's a very wrong approach. And Bergson demonstrated that philosophy can be more, like it can be about, it can give us an original new type of knowledge about reality. And that, that's what intuition is about. It's a sort of rational, but also speculative knowledge of, of uh, reality and the, the way that reality is changed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean... As we've sort of been mentioning the these biographical elements of Bergson and and the the sort of the history elements, I guess it's something to bring in here in 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 relation to what you're talking about there, um, this relationship between science and philosophy, which, you know, very very roughly, of course, I'm sure a historian of philosophy could pick me apart here, but it seems to be that up until a certain point there was a relationship between science and philosophy which was uh, one where one bolstered the other one learned from the other and they weren't really understood uh, you know back to our conversation at the start about how we uh, speak about class you know how, if we could ever communicate with classical philosophers you know what is understood of what science is by definition and what philosophy is by definition in in say the day of Descartes you know it's commonly said now that if Descartes was alive today he would primarily be seen as a scientist you know to in quotation marks, you know, as a definition, a scientist than a philosopher, and probably the same with Leibniz as well. And so it's, you know, there's this sort of damning moment in the history of philosophy, which is this Bergson-Einstein debate where Bergson famously sort of, you know, loses for whatever that means. But his sort of loss in not being able to truly understand, if I recall correctly, what Einstein was trying to explain sort of changed the relationship between science and philosophy, at least in the public view. Um, I don't know if you want to uh, sort of expand on this and sort of state perhaps how we could productively move past and move past the separation of science and philosophy and perhaps find, a, once again, find a, I don't like this word, but a holistic approach to both. Yeah, um, uh, one of the chapters, it's it's about uh, the Einstein-Bergson debate. And basically, I think it's a, it was really a huge disaster for, for philosophy, this, uh, not just, not the debate itself, but the, the way it was then framed. So uh, actually part of, a large part of why Bergson uh, 
Bergson's um, became very less popular was that uh, he was perceived as being the sort of the loser of this uh, 1922 debate. But if we actually look at uh, this was actually published in sometime in the 1960s in English uh, at the transcripts of the, the debate, we find something very different. We actually find that uh, Einstein is actually the one who completely misun completely missed the point of what Bergson is trying to say. So actually, uh, it was the physicist who Einstein simply wasn't a good enough philosopher to understand what Bergson is talking about. I mean, that's that's the gist. That's the problem here. Um, however, uh, uncomf- however strange it seems, that this is the case. Einstein thought that Bergson was talking about uh, subjective, the subjective experience of time, so like psychological time, like the way I feel time is heading somewhere, like um, the way like time goes fast or slow for me if I'm feeling uh, depressed or happy or something. Like this is what Einstein thought Bergson was talking about. But Bergson, actually, if we look at it, Bergson is talking about something very different. Actually, what Bergson was objecting to in Einstein's theory of relativity is that it's not relativist enough. It's, uh, relativity doesn't. Einstein's theory of relativity, according to Bergson, it doesn't go far enough because it's still talking about a single. It's talking about uh, time uh, in in the singular because time is basically. Uh, spatialized in in the Einsteinian uh, system, uh, at least according to Bergson, and also it's uh, connected to the speed of light. And this for Bergson, it's not relativist enough. So what Bergson is talking about is that time, it's more than any subjective experience of time, but it's also more than any physicist can find out about time. So time is sort of more than any scientific approach can also uh, inform us about time so it's time is time has way more layers than any type of human knowledge can uh, can integrate into itself duration it's uh, there's always several types of duration it's not, not a single duration this is what einstein didn't uh, understand because he thought bergson is just a phenomenologist basically uh, phenomenology would be the idea that uh, there is a lived lived uh, subjective time. And Bergson doesn't deny that there is such a type of time, but that's not the whole story of dura- duration. So duration is change, basically. Bergson's philosophy, it's a philosophy of change. And it's a sort of relativist view of time as well. There's not a single time. There's countless different mo- forms of time. There's physiological time, the time of our, our body, like in aging, for example. Uh, there's obviously cycle experience time. There is also uh, the time of uh, life, the Elan Vital. Um, there's no real good translation for this, but it's like the life force or the life... Um, that's also a type of duration. So the whole evolution of, uh, of life, it, it's also a, a form of duration for Bergson. Um, there is also uh, the duration of matter in itself. Bergson is very much also a materialist in many ways, which is very interesting because people don't usually read him as that. 
But Bergson also says that matter has a time of, of, of its own. So this is, this is four, four big uh, types of time, four different modes of change. So um, Einstein is very much actually way more conservative than Bergson when it comes to um, uh, thinking about time. And like uh, Einstein wouldn't have, have accepted that there, are, there is like countless different modes of time or something. Like he was very much in this idea of, uh, he was very much a conservative materialist in this sense that um, yeah, there is just physical time and that's it. And um, any other type of time is nonsense or, or imaginary or whatever. So Bergson was, was actually more, more of a more advanced uh, type of relativist uh, than Einstein. And that's, that's the problem that the physicists simply, and the other like uh, Einstein's colleagues, either this point was completely lost upon them. They, they, they were just talking about physics, Physics, physical time, and uh, that's it. So that, that's a very uh, one-sided view of, of reality. So what do you, what do you think it is that um, people might often get wrong about Bergson's understanding of time? Um, uh, the biggest mistake, one of the biggest mistakes, is viewing Bergson as a phenomenologist. Um, so as someone who is just talking about the lived experience of time as, as if that, that were duration. That, that's part of what Bergson is talking about, but it's not the whole story when it comes to change. So there's this very common reading of Bergson that uh, he's just talking about the way I experience the flow of time in my consciousness. But that, that's just one type of duration. So like the, it's, it's not, uh, not the whole not not the only type of duration. So there's this is uh, in my book. I identify basically, well, I mean, three basic types of duration. But you can you can add the fourth one as well. So the ones I I mentioned the so this is psychological lived time, the physiological time, the time of my body, which which is not the same as as my psychological time. So that's two. Then you have uh, the time of uh, life in general. The Elam Vital. And uh, so the fourth is the time of matter, matter, uh, which is uh, sort of close to uh, instantaneous. Sort of uh, matter is like uh, Bergson claims that it's sort of, uh, it's almost close to an instant. It doesn't have memory, for example. Uh, Atoms don't really remember things, whereas uh, humans do, animals do. But it's also it's actually more complex than that because matter also has a sort of a, so there's no clear cut uh, actually when we delve deeper into what Bergson is talking about it, it appears that Bergson is to, uh, in, in a creative evolution it's a major book it's about the evolution of life creative evolution um, it, it looks on first impressions that Bergson is uh, is putting life on one side and matter on the other. Like matter is like dead, life is living, it's evolving, changing, and matter is like not, not living, not, not spontaneous, not changing. But uh, actually, it's not the case because when we look deeper, and this is what, uh, what I talk about, is that actually there's no clear-cut 
dividing line between what is alive and what is dead. So that Bergson is not actually a vitalist in this sense, because matter is also in a way living. It's sort of it, anything can become alive in, in Bergson's uh, view. Um, matter is just life, which is waiting to evolve and emerge. So it's a very strange view of, of the universe, but that, that, that's what Bergson is claiming. So that there's no clear cut dividing line between the organic or the inorganic, for example. So um, I've gone in a bit, uh, bit ahead of myself, but uh, so that um, so that there's there's no the, the point here is that there's no one type of, of time, basically. That this is what I think is a very uh, intriguing uh, idea that we can we can really distinguish between these uh, the different types of time, so like the the whole uh, process of life's evolution. It's it's a sort of uh, continuity in a way. This is also very important. This is an important point that a duration, uh, a change, it's uh, it's continuous. So it's continuous and also heterogeneous. So it's, it's a heterogeneous, like, you know, a dif difference. A continuity which is heterogeneous. It's a, it sounds like a self-contradiction, but it's actually not. Um no duration can be sliced up into pieces. It's continuous. It's a continuum, every single duration. But still, they uh, sort of build up onto each other. Like uh, humans have, uh, for example, in, in the case of humans, we have evolved from the uh, Elam Vita. We're also part of the continuity of life, but we also have our own psychological time as well. I don't know how... how complicated this all sounds when trying to <laughs> perhaps if we took a couple of terms where which we might be able to situate ourselves that i put in the questions here how could we formulate or begin to understand or re-understand so to speak the ideas ideas such as progress and stability within these this bergsonian form of or these these bergsonian uh formulations of time yeah, I mean, uh, Bergson, he uh, denies that there is such a thing as possibility, which is, uh, which is interesting, because there's, there's only pure actualization. Like, there's, there's nothing, it, it's not a, like when a, like, we can say an example, like when a new species evolves, for example, like you have something, an animal which didn't exist before. It's not a case of a possibility becoming realized. Like there was like a possibility for a new type of fly to evolve. Um, there was nothing there before. We can only say that in hindsight, biologists um, talk about how there was an ecological niche which had to be filled and uh, a new species came, um, evolved um, and to fill that, that niche. But this is, uh, Bergson would say that this is only a sort of retrospective projection of what, what there's a fact now, which we see that there, there is a new species. And we sort of try and think about why that thing has evolved, but there was nothing actually there before. So there's no such, in Bergson's philosophy, there's absolutely nothing like possibility. There's, there's just pure change. There's no previously existing possibility. And this has imp very important uh, social ramifications, actually. 
um, regarding the idea of progress, because progress uh, we imagine progress to be something which is like heading from one place to another, like a future from the past. We're going to the present to the future. There's some sort of future which we're heading towards. There's a sort of a teleology or something. There's a direction. Like many people who believe in progress, not everyone, but a lot of people who believe in progress and uh, claim that they're progressive, they believe in a sort of uh, that there's a direction in history, like we're heading towards some sort of final state or utopia or something. And if we think about time and change uh, through Bergson's philosophy, um, well, we can't really say that there is any sort of direction uh, in, in social evolution, in natural evolution. We can't say what the next animal species will look like or what the next form of life or the next uh, type of animal or the next type of society will look like. It's impossible because there's, there's no such thing as possibility. We're only going to know what the next species or the next uh, social system will look like once we're there. So uh, this is really that progress, it only becomes uh, visible in hindsight, which is uh, if, if we accept what Bergson is talking about. So based on Bergson's philosophy, we can only see in hindsight what, what, uh, what, what change is or what, what the change has resulted in. And it becomes very hard to predict. It's actually impossible to predict uh, the future because uh, the future doesn't exist. So um, there's no such thing as a future in his in his so, uh, so system. From this, does does all it seems that um, you know allow me to play the uh, the ignorant devil's advocate here? Surely, all differentiation between uh, what we would normally consider progressive steps or um, you know differences in possibility like that thing has happened this thing is going to happen does all differentiation between uh, relations simply become relational and communicational right it's just a, a fluxing difference as opposed to a there seems to be a complete removal of definitive borders here yeah i mean uh bergson doesn't he does not deny that um we, so he basically he, he distinguishes between two types of, of knowledge, I guess, or two ways of looking at the world. And one of these is the sort of when we separate things, a sort of an analytical type of uh, knowledge. Like I separate healthy food from bad food or something like that. So like I, I, we, we need to separate things because uh, it contributes to our everyday uh, life. Uh, it keeps us alive, basically. Um, if we make uh, distinctions between things. So Bergson doesn't deny that that has a sort of uh, local relevance to our uh, everyday life, but he very much denies that that's actually the case in, in so reality. That, that's not reality. That, that's just our way of, uh, so we make artificial, uh, we can't construct artificial uh, differences between things. But in Bergson's philosophy, everything is change, basically. There really is, and everything is a change which is happening now. This is the sort of the, the central uh, thesis of, of my book is that if we follow Bergson 
consequently, we find that everything is 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 changing always, and um, it's very hard to imagine this because this is so very different. He he admits it several times. This way of thinking about the world has nothing to do with our everyday experience of the world because that's that's something very different completely. I I don't see a continuity of change in my room or something. It's I have a table and a chair and I can't. Uh, in a cup and I sort of it's very hard to live that way if I mix my mix up my cup with my chair it leads to bad results um, but regarding this so get back to the nature of progress uh, it becomes uh, very difficult to think about something like progress if we uh, so progress it has to be like a continuous change but there's no direction. He says several times that evolution, for example, has no direction. We can't say where it's all heading, basically. And um, this is a, a, a continuity of change. Change is every, everything. It's the substance of reality, basically. That, that's that's what cha- reality is made of change. And uh, this is the, the basic point of what, what Bergson is always trying to make. That, that uh, changes the substance of, of uh, everything which exists. Um, so, if if that is uh, if that is the case, then how is it that we can hold on to uh, sing- singular things apart from one another? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting question, and this uh, this has been uh, this has been a uh, for example, uh, John Malarkey. He's uh, he's a very interesting commentator of Bergson. He talks in one of his books about um, about how every philosophy can be, every philosophy which talks, which talks about the world in general, like this is what the world is like, or this is what reality is, is like. We can, we can always object to any type of philosophy on the basis that if this is what the world is like, this is what reality is, then how can someone claim the opposite like how is it possible then for someone to say that uh, i don't know everything is made of uh, separate atoms or separate molecules or whatever like how is it possible then if why is it even possible for me or anyone else to think about a different type of uh, worldview like what what uh, this was a criticism of bergson by many uh, like bertrand russell for example who said that on what basis does Bergson claim that everything is change? And uh, the answer for that is intuition, basically. Like, you have to have an intuition of, uh, of this change. Uh, either you have it or you don't. So it's, it's a very tricky thing because a scientist might say that this is not a scientific mode of knowledge, but it's more like esoteric type of thing. Like, it's a... Uh, you either experience intuition of reality or you don't. You experience the intuition of change or you don't. And this is a valid criticism. So I'm not saying that uh, this is this could be like an, epist- uh, like an epistemological weak point of what he's talking about. Because not everyone experiences the world as change. So it becomes a sort of a tricky you are either it becomes a almost like a belief like it's not a knowledge i guess so it, it, i wouldn't deny that this is a problem 
but uh, it's nevertheless it's an it's an appealing uh, type of uh, outlook on the world, and it's also surprisingly practical in many ways, because I think it can. Uh, so I think a sort of a positive thing we we can take from this is that it sort of uh, changes the way we think about the world, and uh, it sort of also changes the. Mm, so it prevents us from getting uh, sort of too bogged down in our beliefs and our, uh, getting too uh, stabilized in, in, in our belief systems. So if we think about society, for example, so I guess if we think about society as something which is constantly changing, that prevents us from getting stuck in uh, the in our everyday habits, for example, Um I'm going to actually be write, uh, publishing a book next year about uh, Bergson's social philosophy. So this progress um, concept, this is actually uh, relates basically to his uh, social philosophy. The idea he he was, for example, uh, the first uh, philosopher who mentioned the idea of an open society, for example. So, um, and the, if we think about the world as change. It helps us keep uh, an open mind about uh, reality, and that, that's very important, I think, especially in this day and age, which is so very much um, full of uh, dogmatism and uh, sort of also scientism. So, like the, the idea that science is uh, capable of showing us what reality is. And uh, we all we just have to blindly follow what science is about. Um, if, if we think about reality as change, we can see that our own uh, systems of knowledge are also impermanent and always always uh, shifting and changing. So it sort of prevents us from getting uh, really too dogmatic about stuff. But uh, someone could definitely say that uh, if we say that everything is change, um, that's also a sort of a how shall I put it? It can also be a dogma in many ways. So I'm not trying to say that this is like a good or bad thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just moving forward to something that, that I imagine is is related to and altered for Bergson in relation to this idea of change. It's a quote on page 180 um, where you you state the idea of an image which is more than a representation, shall prove the key to unmixing the false dualities of mind-body and mind-matter. Um, how is it that Bergson manages to get beyond the, the you know, the, the the sort of, I guess, the age-old mind-body problem? Is it is it in relation to this, uh, his notion of change? Well, uh, yeah, this is uh, the his book, Matter and Memory. And uh, basically, he claims that the mind-body uh, and mind-matter dualities this is that this is a false problem actually like he denies the basic relevance of the problem itself and um, this is a very important move the way he does this is uh, through the concept of uh, the image and he claims that the body is also an image but also that matter is made of images as well um, an image is uh, basically a sort of, I would call it um, access. I think it's like access in terms of like you open a door and you access uh, a room. It's a, it's a mode, it's like a, 
universal mode of access. And this connects to uh, your question about communication. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, communication is what Bergson is talking about. Uh, rather, I would say that it's uh, it's a type of um, so it's because communication is sort of a it, communication would be like a it's a relates to meaning. For example, um, communication is a closed circuit. I think like in, in we talk about communication when we're talking about uh, two closed systems which share a common meaning. Uh, images in Bergson's philosophy they don't have a common basis. Um, there's no way of uh, communicating in the sense that they don't transmit uh, meaning to each other. But nevertheless, uh, an image is uh, it's sort of a, it's, it's a, it's not a image in the sense that I have an image of the world. It's not a representation. It's a, rather, it's a, sort of, I guess, an opening up to each other of, of different types of duration. Like when we think about our own everyday life, like I, I'm a living being, I'm, I'm, situated in uh, life, in the continuity of life. Like I, I'm a, a sort of a living animal, but I'm also uh, human in the sense that I have a sort of psychological time as well. Also, I connected to the cosmic time. So I also have a sort of connection to the cos cosmic time. And the way I connect to the world is through my body which is also an image. He, Bergson says that it's an image among images. So that he doesn't say that my body or my mind is separate from uh, the world. I'm, I'm part of the world. And um, this is the basic point that there's no real difference between, that's the big idea in mind and mind and, um, sorry, matter and memory, that matter is actually contains uh, mind. So he's a, he makes a sort of a panpsychic um, cosmology. Matter is, is a, it's, it's doesn't, it's not the, it's not different from mind. Sort of takes mind out of the body and into the world. The world is full of uh, mind. It's not the same type of mind as uh, my own mind, obviously. A human uh, nervous system is very more advanced than, than a, uh, uh, an ants or something. So like, Bergson isn't saying everything is conscious necessarily. That that's something different. But he does say several times in Matter and Memory that that the sort of beginnings of consciousness are there in matter. So that he sort of decomposes the this uh, ontological barrier between mind and matter. Like for him, th these these aren't that difference, not a dialectical uh, opposition or anything. Now, matter is, is mind and, ma and mind is also matter. Um, there's not a huge ontological uh, difference between the two. This is a revolutionary idea, I think, because uh, there have been earlier thinkers. Um, he's not the first panpsychist, but I think he's the, one of the first modern philosophers uh, to really I think uh, get underneath this mind-body problem. So not not going head head first through it, but uh, sort of go underneath. Or um, uh, and this is the way Bergson gets gets beyond this this duality because it's it's completely. I think it's one of the most counterproductive uh, 
false problems in philosophy. This this idea that mind can somehow be uh, surgically separated from matter, or the or the body can be distinguished from the mind. Um, you have huge huge amounts of research today, which which completely um, reject this 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 idea that the mind is can somehow be like separated from the body or uploaded we can upload our minds to like a hard drive or something that's complete nonsense i think um our mind is only uh it it's it can't be separated from our body like it's uh, the the two of the it's one of the biggest mistakes in the history of philosophy this this separation between these two and and Bergson has been just hugely influential. I don't address this in the book, but for uh, like uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, for example, um, in his late work, *The Visible and the Invisible*, uh, that's that's a uh, hugely influenced by by Bergson, for example. Merleau-Ponty also goes in the same direction. Like, how can we go beyond this uh, Cartesian uh, separation between mind and matter? Or mind and body. So um, that, that's the way Bergson does it. He, he reduces everything to in in that book to images, but images are also um, so duration also plays a huge role in this because my my duration, uh, like my psychological duration, it's integrated into the other duration. So we have a hierarchy of uh, of different types of change of matter, life, and uh, mind, and the, these aren't. Uh, so at the end of the day, everything really does get uh, everything really is continuous. At the end of the day, we all we have is change, just different types of change. So that's the that's the gist of what what Bergson is trying to do, and uh, this is the way he he also uh, in a, in, a, in another book he does this uh, thing between freedom and. Uh, determination it's also like the the free will debate is also something which he thinks is a, is a false problem so he he, he does this uh, several times with the uh, with false dualities false problems um and it's a very interesting way of of approaching what, these why uh, does he see ideas. the free will debate as a false problem well he he thinks that uh, that the free will uh that that uh, fr- freedom is is basically it's uh, so so that so the two sides of this debate are the determinists who think that uh, everything is uh, everything is determined in advance. Um, on the other hand, uh, Bergson says that the like the people who think about uh, think about free will. Um, they talk about talking about how we can give ourselves uh, future goals. Like we can, uh, I can give myself a goal which I can achieve in the future. Bergson says that uh, freedom is actually it's not about giving myself a purpose, and it's also not about. Uh, so it's freedom is more about. Uh, being spontaneous now, like in the present, I have to go back to the present and sort of uh, do something without being uh, uh, impeded. And it's it's a false problem because both the determinists and the indeterminists, um, like the people who believe in free will and people who reject free will, they 
sort of they don't uh, question the idea that uh, they're sort of thinking uh, about time in, in a different way than what, what Bergson is talking about. So they're, they're not, neither of these positions, people who believe in free will, they're talking about how the future is, uh, is uh, open. Um, but people who talk about determinism, they're also talking about a future which is closed. But neither of these positions questions the basic uh, ontological status of the future. Like they always talk about a future decision, which I'm going to arrive at based on a, on a previous uh, uh, like based, based on previous possibilities. Uh, it's again the problem of possibility. Like if someone believes in free will, they, they talk about how I can uh, achieve future possibilities. This is most often how people talk about free will. But Bergson, he, he says that freedom and free will is, is, uh, exists, like he defends free will. But he says that it's not about achieving a future possibility because he rejects the very idea of a possibility. So this is why both determinists and so people who reject free will and people who uh, affirm free will, both of them are wrong. Because both of them are talking about uh, doing things in terms of possibility. And the, the possibility does not exist. The future does not exist. So um, neither does the past, actually. But that's a, that's a different, different topic altogether. This is why they're both wrong, that they all, they're talking about future possibilities or impossibilities. And uh, in this sense, uh, both of these are, are completely delusional basically, if, if we accept what Bergson is talking about. And so this is why you your book is sub, subtitled The Philosophy of the, the Enduring Present. That's where everything is maintained, is held. Yes, it's, it's, it's all about the present. Uh, the present is where everything happens, basically. It's not always the same present. So like my present is different from your present. It's different from... Uh, the present of an of a just a, uh, a material object. It has a my uh, this cup cup has a different present. Uh, the universe has an altogether different present. So everything has a different present. But everything interesting which happens in the universe, it's it's in the present. It happens. Duration happens in the present. It, this is a constant. Uh, Bergson says this every time that uh, it's a very simple message, but it's still. Uh, got lost in translation or something that everything every, all duration is it goes in the present it's a present which is always changing but it's nevertheless a present so like we can't say we can't go back to the past and say that uh, nothing is happening in the past anymore it's it's dead it's gone the future isn't here yet so what's the point of talking about the future so it, it leaves us with the present basically um, if there's no such thing as possibility, we have pure change, pure actualization. That's what Bergson is, is uh, doing. It's taking us back to the present. Um, that's the huge importance of what he's talking about. And it's, it's, a, it's an ethical message. It's an ontological message. Um, it's all of these. It's a political message in many ways. So um, I, I wanted to go back actually to... Um, mm -hmm. This uh, so why Bergson was popularity? Why did it decline? 
And part of it was the Einstein debate, but another part of it is sort of politics in many ways. Like Bergson wasn't really a deeply political thinker, and uh, this is why he was sort of rejected by some parts of uh, academic life. So he wasn't uh, a really uh, terribly progressive thinker because he wasn't a utopian. Like you, you can't say what what's the ideal type of society. What Bergson trying to say is very much uh, all about how keeping our options open, but also trying to remain in the present, in this present, which is always changing. So it's not not like static or anything. Um, but yeah, so we have to we have to always uh, retrace our steps and get back to the present before we get lost in uh, in uh, the realm of make believe. Okay, okay. Does he ever comment uh, at length on what sort of happens when we if we stay in you know as you say that realm of make believe? Are all our um, assumptions from that point on just incorrect? Well, I mean, uh, possibility is uh, so du- duration. It's interesting because it's it's more than any consciousness we have of it. So time, change is always more than what I can think about, and it's always more than what I can fit in my brain. And um, this is very important when it comes to what. what why do we? So Bergson he mentions virtuality in matter and memory in the way that uh, an, an animal wants to jump on another branch or something like in the jungle, you have a monkey which wants to jump on another branch and he has, and the monkey has to sort of uh, think about what's going to happen if I jump onto the other branch. So I have to virtually sort of think through whether I have to hesitate, maybe hesitation is very important for Bergson's philosophy of uh, mind because the more I hesitate, the more intelligent I am. So that, that this is one of the key takeaways of what he says. He says this, that the, the, the more I can think about what I'm going to do, the more intelligent I am. So we, uh, in pr- practical everyday life, we do need to think sometimes about what, what the consequences of my actions are going to be. What happens if I can't reach the branch and I fall down and the tiger eats me? And, and stuff. So um, I, we we need to we need virtuality, um, but we don't have to. We can't forget that the virtual is still just virtual. It's not real, and we can't confuse this with the present. So that, that that's the that's when problems start when uh, philosophers and uh, thinkers they confuse um, some future thing with with what is actually here, and it is, is a very huge risk in the 21st century, especially when we have all these uh, utopias and uh, or dystopias, whatever. Actually, it's more, more dystopian today than utopian, but uh, we, we should not confuse the f- visions of the future with the present. The present is really what matters. And uh, we have all these political discourses about uh, climate change and whatever, and uh, all these things which I'm not you know, denying climate change or anything. I'm just saying that we have to sort of, uh, in many ways, get real about uh, about the present and not uh, not get too lost in uh, in in 
future in simulations of what the future will be like about uh, projections and all that that's their pro we shouldn't confuse projections with reality that that's all that's all what Bergson is talking about also what, what I'm trying to like actualize is that we really uh, have to through the power of intuition sort of get back to this this living knowledge of the present do you think that's that, why Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, do you think that's why the the Deleuze, beginning from the Deleuzean point of view, is is could could be a little almost dangerous because there is this clear emphasis on virtuality. Yeah, um, Deleuze is very much a utopian, at least in the nineteen sixties, and this is, I think, this is one of the key reasons why he. He uses that why he places such a huge emphasis on the virtual. He doesn't just say that the virtual is uh, the equal to the actual. He actually says that Duller says that the virtual is superior to the actual. It's it's everything is the virtual, and actually the actual is almost nothing. Um, that, that is just, I think, uh, a classic uh, form of utopian thinking. The, the idea that the Especially the future—that's that's going to be uh, the future. Is uh, you know, I have to be more aware of the future than the present, and that just leaves us uh, dreaming, I guess. Um, and uh, it, it uh, completely it gets uh, our head in the clouds. We become like a platonist in many ways. Like we get lost in these ideas, and we forget the the real stuff which is here right now. So. Um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't like Bergson. He wasn't wasn't like an anti-science type of person or anything like. Uh, he didn't deny natural science or, or he didn't say that we shouldn't think about the future at all. That's that's not what I'm saying either. It's just that we sort of have to keep things in perspective, I guess, in, in, in many ways. Like um, this is it's, it's very hard to do this, um, especially in a world which is so. So full of uh, full of noise, um, it's hard to distinguish between what's important, what's not important, um, and it's it's not far from easy. So it's not not easy to to uh, select noise from information. But uh, I think this sort of awareness of being in the present it can help us even on a personal level, like not 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 in the big stage of philosophy or history or anything. It can help us sort of, it can be therapeutic in many ways. I found it therapeutic in, in the sense of like being in the, and this sounds like a sort of like a new age type of like stuff, but um, I found Bergstone's philosophy useful on a personal level of like getting back to this situated awareness of, of the present. Um, it's very meditative in many ways that we, we, we don't, I don't let my thoughts go uh, in a, in a, like a, like get, get lost in, in always. Like if we, if you always think about the, what the future and like what, what bills I have to pay or what, uh, what, where I'm going to be in 10 years, I'll be, I'll be a miserable person, you know? So like, uh, you can't get lost always in the future. You have to be in the present. It doesn't mean you shouldn't think about the future at all, but uh, 
it really is uh, important to uh, sort of remain uh, true to the present. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's very useful from from this perspective. I think that this this intuitive, this getting uh, being inside of my duration, being at home in in my in my duration, is 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 very important ethically. Okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to to add about your your book that you feel we've missed? I mean, I would just say to to listeners that it is uh, it's a fantastic book. It explains a lot very quickly, and it's written um, both academically and and quite beautifully at times. So, but is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for the uh, the, the compliment. Um, uh, I think uh, there was this. Uh, question you mentioned about um what what uh, what is so what is permanent for Bergson or what what uh yes what, as of stability yeah so what what what's uh, what's stability for Bergson and I think uh Bergson's philosophy it's really about the stability and eternity of of change I guess if we could reduce it to a simple formula it's change is everything changes everything that that's it that's that's the that's the couple of words that that's the basic uh, formula of of what bergsonism really is and um you know he was in many ways um uh like his first book is about lucretius for example lucretius and uh who was an epicurean philosopher but uh so uh, bergson was uh uh, there was this uh, question you mentioned about uh, this. This is the written uh, um, about uh, how Bergson connects to Lucretius, mm-hmm. and uh, so I think that uh, Bergson was not an atomist. Uh, this is also one of the most important scientific uh, breakthroughs, I guess, of of Bergson is that he he wasn't. Uh, he he wasn't an atomist in the sense that he did, Bergson does not believe that there are separate atoms uh, in the world. Like he was very much. Uh, he even talks about uh, in the matter and memory of how each particle is actually has a wave function as well. Like this is decades before quantum physics. So that 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 was a huge uh, thing for me because. Uh, this is this is how Bergson, he, as a philosopher, is sort of thinking about physical physics, uh, physical uh, problems, and um, everything is uh, is sort of like made of waves and uh, continuities, um, and there's no atoms aren't really separate from each other, and uh, like this is very inspiring for me that Bergson, as as a philosopher, who wasn't a physicist, was capable of uh, really. Um, finding something new about the world and, and uh, like f- just through speculating about uh, stuff and w- w- speculation is always a risk. Like if we speculate, we're taking risks about uh, what if I'm going to write something which is uh, stupid or scientifically inaccurate or whatever. Like philosophy has to be brave. I think philosophy has to sort of have the guts to uh, say new things about the world, even beyond our current knowledge. When Bergson wrote about this, uh, 
about how atoms are not separate from each other. That was not the norm back then. There was something something new, which was only at the cutting edge of physics uh, back then. They, this was in the late 19th century. Um, and and uh, back then they were starting to talk about magnetism and how there's these forces which keep the world together and stuff. And they were talking about ether and a lot of, lot of different kinds of things. But uh, Bergson, as a philosopher, he was, he was capable of saying something new about uh, what atoms are, for example. And, and that's just huge for me. Right? That's, uh, that, that's a really inspiring because I think philosophers do have uh, important things to say about the world, which maybe can be different from what physicists are currently talking about. So um, that, that, that's why Bergson is, is hugely inspiring for me. The, he had the... He had the guts to talk about uh, things which are very different from from uh, the natural sciences, and it turned out that he was actually correct in in in, in some things. Like it really, uh, quantum physics uh, later did discover that uh, that atoms are in many ways continuous. Maybe not in exactly the way Bergson said, but the, there is a so they aren't really that. Uh, completely separate from each other. That's that's a huge uh, revelation for me that he, he did that. Did that uh, Bergson wrote about this decades before the quantum physicists. Yeah, but, yeah that's just a long, long uh, bracket or something. <laughs> that's a... Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, where, where would you advise people to begin with Bergson? And then I guess perhaps where would you advise people to begin to understand the the you know Deleuze's effects on on the history of Bergson philosophically. I think we should uh, begin with uh, if someone wants to read Bergson, I think they should read his uh, three major works, which are uh, Time and Free Will, then uh, Creative Evolution and Matter and Memory. I think. All of Bergson's philosophy is basically contained in these uh, three books. But if you want to start with the very basics, I think you need uh, to read, if someone wants to start with the basics, they have to read uh, Introduction to Metaphysics. I think that's the, that's the title. That's, that's one of Bergson's like, uh, shorter essays. Like For someone who who's, uh, wants to begin like from the very beginning, um, because that's where you have the the really key points of Bergson's philosophy. What what is intuition? What's change? Um, what is reality? That that's that's the basic uh, that's the starting point. Um, from there, you uh, I think anyone can. It, it's not very complicated. I think that was also a very important uh, um, for me that Bergson is easy to un- not easy to understand, but not hard to understand. So it's not not like reading Hegel or something. It's not a not a bloody nightmare. <laughs> read read Bergson. So that that was also a, a very important uh, for me. Mm-hmm. So he's he, he tries to explain things like as, as simply as he can. Um, it's not that complicated, but it's also like uh, his language is very colorful as well. His examples are also um, regarding the like reading Bergson after Deleuze. We can't forget Deleuze at all. Um, Deleuze does uh, his later books. Uh, these these are the cinema books. The ones he wrote on like the, the two uh, cinema books. These are these were in the nineteen eighties. 
And there, uh, Deleuze actually comes closer to to Bergson, and those actually have a way more interesting philosophy of time, which is not this virtual is everything type of uh, of Deleuze. It's a very, a very different type of more more advanced type of Deleuze. So, um, if we can put it that way. Um, so we can't forget Deleuze at all, um, and I don't suggest that we do so. But I do think we need to, I guess, revise the way we read uh, Deleuze's Bergsonism book, the, the 1960s. So the, the the Bergsonism, because that really is not a commentary of Bergson, as, as we've uh, we've discussed. So we we do have to change the way we read Deleuze and we really have to read Deleuze as as a Deleuzean and not not as a not as a philo- uh, historian of other philosophers so we have to forget that type of reading of Deleuze but reading Deleuze as a himself like as, as a philosopher who's talking about their own philosophy that's completely fine so um, I don't have a problem issue with that but I, I do have a major issue with with, with reading like Nietzsche or Spinoza through through Deleuze, that's that's the wrong one wrong way to to approach these these thinkers, I think. Okay, okay. Um, whereabouts can we find your book? Um, well, it's uh, it's available uh, as an ebook or uh, through the publisher, I think. Um, there's also it's like on Amazon and a couple of places. There's also um, if anyone is interested, I can send them a uh, like. A, um, how should I? Can send them a, a discount voucher if if that's a that's a help for anyone. It's like an official uh, discount voucher for someone who wants to. Um, they have this uh, discount until uh, the end of this year. So if someone finds the price a little bit too much, they can. Uh, find an easy easy discount uh, through okay. through me. Um, so yeah, um, there's a couple of like online places which which uh, have it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, do you do you blog anywhere? Or are you working on anything? You're working on this other book about focus on social philosophy. Yes, um, I have this uh, Facebook website, uh, Facebook uh, page. It's called Absentology, um, with the bit like a, a absence, like absence, Absentology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually post uh, news about my stuff through that that page. So um, maybe we can like add it to the. The description, yeah. Yeah, yeah description, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure, for sure. Um, yeah, it's been really good. Um, I really enjoyed your book. Um, Adam Adam Lobas, thanks, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you.